Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming uh, this evening to this discussion that we're hosting in partnership with ASCOL, continuing the series of events that we're doing over the course of the next few years. Um, my name is James Frank, I'm Director of Policy here at Policy Exchange. Um, some of you uh, will know Jonathan Simons, who's supposed to be hosting this evening, uh, but he is currently, uh, Sally can't make it, so I'm, I'm stepping in for this evening. Um, uh, he will be watching on live stream, which I'll explain in a moment. Um, so, firstly, then on logistics, uh, for those people that want to tweet, uh, the hashtag is going to be PXKnowledge. Uh, and then, uh, with the help of Cambridge Assessment, we're going to be periscoping, so live streaming uh, this evening's event. Uh, and people following on Twitter uh, can basically access that live stream by going to Cambridge Assessment page and clicking the link. Um, so, I think the size of the audience here uh, tonight really reflects the interest that there is in this subject. Um, and also uh, in the great quality of the guests that we've got this evening that, that Gerald will introduce in a moment. Um, so the issue of knowledge in the curriculum, so what young people should be expected to know and when, is becoming um, a central part of the education debate and is something which is becoming increasingly interesting for us here at Policy Exchange. So it's increasingly clear that uh, the debate that we're going to have around structures is going to continue for the foreseeable future. Um, it would have been... Uh, possible that that debate was going to, uh, to go to bed, it would seem that that's going to run on the, the foreseeable future. Um, but it looks like increasingly the debate around education is going to be focused much more on um, what actually gets taught in schools rather than just on structures. So that to us I think is incredibly welcome. Um, there'll be a division, no doubt, amongst us all on what the right structure should be. I personally would welcome um, uh, a different structure, would also welcome a, a, a knowledge-based approach in the classroom. But regardless of the approach that we take and uh, regardless of um, you know, which way the debate goes on uh, knowledge, I think it's going to be fantastic for parents and teachers across the country if there is um, a serious solution that takes place far and above the heads of ordinary parents. Um, you know, whether or not schools are free school or academy is, is much less interesting to what their, their child actually gets taught. So if we have a, a proper national debate on this, I think that's going to be good for, uh, for the program. Um, I just realised I should have said at the very outset that I'm just I'm just doing the intro tonight. It will be it will be chaired by Gerald. Um, but just before I pass over to Gerald, um, some of you will know we hosted a very interesting event with Edie Hirsch, who's one of the leading uh, proponents of knowledge-based curriculums, back of the room. Uh, and I'd also like to just say uh, a couple of thank yous again. Thank you to our school for their support tonight, and also for Ted's best uh, uh, and with that, uh, mate, can I pass over to Gerald and ask you all to give him a, a welcome to Rebecca. Thank you. And this evening, sir, as James, now I suspect I'm probably the only person in the room who was pretty clueless about powerful knowledge before I came. A little bit of reading about it, I thought it was something to do with James Fonda, but it turns out it's a bit more perhaps in our schools. And I suppose the big issues um, around powerful knowledge are uh, basically what is it, why is it important, and why is it so contested? And to help us answer those questions, I'm delighted to um, uh, uh, introduce Professor Michael Young, Tim Oates, and Carolyn Roberts. Professor Young is Emeritus Professor of Education at the Institute of Education and one of the foremost academics in the UK on curriculum design. He is author of Knowledge and Future School, which argues for powerful knowledge for all pupils as a curriculum principle for any school. 
arguing that the question of knowledge is intimately linked to the issue of social justice and that access to powerful knowledge is a necessary component of the education for pupils. Tim is the Director of the Assessment, Research and Development <coughs> at Cambridge Assessment. He has advised the UK Government for many years on curriculum and assessment policy, including chairing the expert panel that reviewed the national curriculum between 2010 and 2013. Caroline Roberts has a proper job. She's the head teacher at Thomas Tallis School in London and ASCO Honorary Secretary. She's the co-author with Michael Young of Knowledge and the Future of School. So the format for the, uh, this evening is pretty straightforward. Uh, Michael's going to talk for 50 minutes about uh, powerful knowledge. Uh, then I will then interview them and ask them a few questions, and then we'll throw the um, <coughs> session over to the audience. So with that, Michael, over to you. Thank you very much, John. Thanks to Pulse Exchange and indeed the Association of School College Leaders. Uh, not only the establishing this event in both organisations, I think. Uh, um, played a big role in actually bringing something that hasn't always been on the educational agenda across the education community onto it, um, and uh, for inviting me to contribute. Um, I would like to say that I can't think of anybody else who I would rather have on the panel I was sharing. Uh, so I feel very grateful, and I'm sure by the end of the evening I should feel the same about the audience. But uh, there, that's a promise for you. <coughs> um, my thing is just slightly different from the, uh, the title. I want to talk about a powerful knowledge curriculum making kit for all. And the small difference is important to me for two reasons. First, many schools offer a version of powerful knowledge for some or even all of their students. The difficult pedagogic and political issues arise when the principle is extended to all pupils. Secondly, the idea of powerful knowledge for all reminds us that the argument is not just about the curriculum, that it's an argument about social justice. So why has the idea of powerful knowledge captured the who was involved in actually coining the phrase uh, in the first place, expected? And secondly, why has, this, has the idea divided people so sharply across party political lines? Um, I gave a talk in about 2011, it was somewhat strange that here's Michael Young, a lifelong Labour voter, who was speaking as if he was one of Michael Gove's speechwriters, people who do that at all. Uh, and, uh, but nevertheless, it symbolises, I think, the issue. If you accept the idea that there is better knowledge in any form of inquiry, then this knowledge must be an entitlement for all pupils. How could anyone, for instance, how could anyone in a democratic society not want the best knowledge we have to be the basis for a curriculum for all. Where in fact they had 18 different curricula for different types of pupil uh, and different departments and so forth. And that was frightening and disastrous. Um, despite that, many of those on the, what I might call the educational left and what I believe Michael Gove used to say, called the blog, actually see the idea of powerful knowledge uh, as masking the elitist origins of the academic curriculum, and therefore, in fact, perpetuating inequalities. I'll come back to that a little bit later. I want to start, though, by outlining what I see as the principles for any curriculum and how they relate to the idea of powerful knowledge. <coughs> First, all curricula organise knowledge very differently from our everyday knowledge 
the knowledge that pupils bring to school. They're different in terms of the structure of knowledge and in terms of its purposes. Our everyday knowledge is tied to contexts with which we're familiar and need in order to live without each other in a society to solve the daily problems we have. Curriculum is very different. It's different in structure. It has distinct boundaries and rules which act as constraints on what we know. It's different in purpose. Unlike everyday knowledge, the curriculum doesn't treat the world as an extension of our experience. It treats the world as an object of inquiry. It treats the concepts of curriculum as an object of inquiry, therefore potentially a source of knowledge. Take the city, for example. London children know much about their city. And, however, this knowledge is quite different to the knowledge of cities that a geography teacher knows. It simply extends it in ways that most children would find impossible they didn't go to school. It's the same for literature, history, astronomy, you name it, any, I think, of the academic subjects. We can contrast the everyday knowledge which is particular and tied to pupils' experience, on the one hand, with the knowledge they acquire at school which takes them beyond that experience and up to the power of powerful knowledge and expressed in very different ways in different subjects, whether you talk about maths or about dance, take two might be seen as extremes. So access to powerful knowledge based in the structure and the content of subjects means pupils are not trapped by the limits of their experience. That, in a sense, is the rationale for why we have schools. However, the power of powerful knowledge to generalise, to predict, to envisage possibilities, to, as uh, <coughs> sociologist Basil Bernstein said, to uh, Imagine uh, the unthought and the not yet thought has its downside. It is alien to many pupils and for some hard to acquire. That is why, with the best of intentions, curriculum developments going back into the 70s and the school's council to the Royal Society of Arts, more recently, have tried to develop a curriculum that they hoped would be less alien for low achievers. They assumed that the subject-based academic curriculum was only suitable for a small section of each cohort. In other words, it was in some way intrinsically elitist and discriminatory. The issue they did not consider was that the consequence for those who followed courses which lacked the conceptual content of the mainstream curriculum could not be a resource for enabling the students to generalise or progress in their learning. This is, it was as if there was real science for some, but only for some. I think that looking back at it, they addressed the low achievement problem as a curriculum problem of what to teach. When they're difficult, they should have addressed it as a pedagogic problem. This differentiation of curricula has been associated with two kinds of assumptions. One is the ability, the distribution of the ability to engage in academic subjects in ancient and unequally distributed. Therefore, you have to have a differentiated curriculum. The other is the belief expressed rather evocatively by the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, that in fact the curriculum itself is essentially arbitrary and a form of symbolic violence on many kids. And therefore its content is tend to favour the first explanation, those on the left uh, tend to favour the second. But they come curiously together by providing rationale that nothing can change. The idea of powerful knowledge implies, I think, a very different view of both knowledge and of human nature. First, that knowledge is not arbitrary and it's not just tied to the interests of those with power. 
is tied to the rules and norms of specialist community. Secondly, we have no grounds for claiming that some human beings are born with limited ability to acquire powerful knowledge. I find the alternative preferable for the drawing on the French Lacan, because his argument is that all human beings are born with a desire for knowledge. It's societies that differentiate knowledge and people. This is, of course, not to deny that in an unequal society, the wealthy have the resources to ensure that their children have access to powerful knowledge. <coughs> Unequally. Last week, I received an email quite out of the blue from a teacher I did not know who was a special needs coordinator in an academy in, North, in the North of England. She wrote to me, and I'm paraphrasing, this is what she said. She said, I'm reading your book, Knowledge in the Future School. And at our school, we are working in line with its ideas, in particular, the idea of powerful knowledge for all. She noted, interestingly, that in our book we make no reference to special needs at all. The curriculum per school, she wrote, is based on the principle that, that there is better knowledge, which is a right of all children. But to have a curriculum that's differentiated by types of children, whether defined in terms of disabilities or any other attributes such as social class, only perpetuates inequalities. She ended her email by saying, we have no SEN or inclusion department no withdrawal from timetable, and no alternative pathways with less powerful knowledge-based courses. I know nothing other than the emails I got about the school or the teacher, although she writes an extremely interesting blog, which I can put anybody in touch with uh, if they want to. However, I was deeply moved by reading this email. Until I received it, I'd always thought that addressing the special needs issue was the weak link in the, in the powerful knowledge argument. And now I realize, here's somebody who's telling me that it may be the basis for dealing with For a moment, want to play down the pedagogic challenges that the idea of powerful knowledge for all presents to teachers, or to imply that it's some easy, quick-fit solution to raising attainment. The distribution of school access, success and failure, is related to much wider issues of social inequality and access to resources, particularly how specialist subject teachers are distributed. Furthermore, acquiring new knowledge is always difficult, and for some more difficult than others. And actually convincing students that it's worth the difficulty is one of the problems that teachers face. Furthermore, and this is a criticism of the community I come from of educational researchers, we know little about how best to structure knowledge to make it more accessible. The, so the sociologist Basil Bernstein suggested, and I think rightly, three questions about subjects. One, he asked, how is it selected? Two, he asked, how is it sequenced? Three, he asked, how is it placed in the terms and years of schooling? Now these, I think, are all important questions. The amount of research on them is next to zero. And unfortunately, the Educational um, Endowment Foundation, with its devotion to randomized controlled child trials, is not at the moment showing any signs of being a help. I hope things will change. Okay. Um, what I suggested earlier, just excuse me, but what I suggested earlier was that in fact the assumption that all human beings are born with a desire for knowledge 
it is that must be a basic assumption for us, because in fact, even bringing up children, less assumption about young people. The, but the idea of the desire for knowledge immediately implied that a, not, a notion of knowledge isn't something that we normally that we find, or even lists of concepts, although both are very important. It is a relationship between knowers and know, knowledge and knowers. Now, what I think is interesting is that this relationship has, has been a feature of all societies, but has been transformed from how we actually think about knowledge and education. One way it's been transformed is the emergence and expansion of what I call specialist communities of inquiry. In every field, this has led to a massive growth of knowledge, quite could not have remotely been predicted at the beginning of the, of the 19th century. Uh, there's a great book by which I happen to pick up, because I'm not a historian, by David Wooden, called The Invention of Science, I do recommend it. What he documents is that at least in the Western world, it was not until the 16th century that people realized that there could be new knowledge. It's quite something, actually, that. Uh, the other development, and the, and the other thing which I find intriguing about book, is that the, the, the real breakthrough was not Galileo and Newton. <laughs> the real breakthrough was in fact people discovering the, the Americas. Because suddenly people realized you could do something, and out of what you did, you got new knowledge. It is a great book, I do recommend. The relationship between knowledge about the relationship to knowledge and nurse is the expansion and specialization of pedagogy. Because that's in a sense what we're certainly concerned with here. We're concerned with in the uh, relation to the curriculum. And, the, and this is, of course, an exercise in the transmission of knowledge from generation to generation. But it becomes an ever more complex issue, because as, in fact, research expands, we get much more research, the question of the relationship, what Bernstein calls the recontextualization of knowledge, of new knowledge-making process, and as it has become more complex, we seem, if anything, to do less research on how to engage. I read a biography recently of Matthew Arnold, uh, and um, I suddenly realized that it was not so very different. When, Art, when Matthew Arnold, he turns the ancient issues of researchers in the universities, because it's, it's that relationship that underpins the authority that we can claim for subjects in the school curriculum. Finally, powerful knowledge is not just a curriculum principle. It is also very much a pedagogic principle. And I think it's akin to the idea of justice for lawyers. It defines what it is to be a teacher. Whether, to, whether we refer reports, selecting text, responding to questions in, in class, in each of these you, have, you need to ask the question, in what way does my response to you? That's something we don't all do. It's not about control, although maybe control is involved. It's not about bringing the community in. But are we extending knowledge? Because that is what is distinctive about or what is distinctive about schools. For the most part, we trust the professional work of teachers, just as we trust that of doctors and lawyers. Uh, the trust is easy for maybe easier for you and me, but it's not so easy for governments because they turn to what can crudely be described as industrial models of standardization, their lack of trust. However, 
What works for mass production has its limits. The desire for knowledge cannot be standardized and only weakly interpreted from test results. Powerful knowledge and not a short-term goal. And it has implications across the education system as I've begun to think about. We've had discussion, I've had discussions with Christine about high impact upon leadership, absolutely critically, on the role of heads and heads of departments, all kinds of things like that. That uh, in a sense, it, it works its way through. Because if, if you don't think about it in those terms, then it will become some little technical job with people picking up a few extra facts. Uh, furthermore, if what one reads from the predictions of economists about the kind of work future a country like ours had, then we have no alternative but to take that question of knowledge, very, not that question of powerful knowledge for all, very, very seriously indeed. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And, and um, tonight's not going to be an evening of radical disagreement, I think, um, from my part, in respect of what Michael is proposing and proposed a whole series of very, very important papers. Children no longer need to remember things. Uh, 21st century skills must be the foundation of all contemporary curriculum. I've heard all of those things recently, uh, many of them repeated. The trouble with those statements is that they fly in the face of modern epistemic theory. And they fly in the face of empirical evidence regarding equity and high attainment of education. They sound modern, don't they? They're at odds with the best science that we have regarding the structure and form of knowledge. And they're at odds with a curriculum which ignores core content, core constructs. And this is a key part of some of my core content and disciplines. Makes that curriculum more, not less prone, to arbitrary and ideologically counterintuitive implications of Michael's analysis. If you want a lot of politically driven intervention full of contemporary stuff. Okay, I'll leave you with that. A few more points. Found the thesis of powerful knowledge is the, the erroneous contradiction, the false opposition of knowledge and skills. Now why have knowledge and skills been constructed as an opposition for paper in argument after argument? What's going on? that people assert this. Well, I'm afraid my conclusion is I think this, this opposition is, has been appropriated for internal purposes of internal conflicts in the education community. It's about which people can, they can fight over it. And it's caused a polarisation in the debates, which is entirely at odds with the kind of bodies of theory which I've described, and has been very, very counterproductive. So if I was John White, I'm not, then I'd be really attacking Michael because he's failing to articulate the hegemonic relationships around the defence of Michael. It's the distributional issues about knowledge, who has it, who has access to it, should not be confused with the value of specific knowledge. And John's thesis confuses those two things. He confuses who said something and who's created the knowledge with what the content of that knowledge actually is. Now, I'm not being naive. I, of course, knowledge is value-laden. Of course, it's created under certain conditions. Of course, people create some knowledge and not other knowledge. 
And there are choices in that, and those are determined by the economic and political circumstances of the time in which that knowledge is created. But to confuse the two things, again, is to fly in the face of what we know about modern epistemic theory. Knowledge is external to us. And that sounds very odd, because it is knowledge of the world. And to confuse the authority of the teacher with the authority of the knowledge to which they give access, the quality of knowledge of the natural world should not be confused with the qualities of the person who originates it. And that's one of the problems with John's thesis. I know knowledge of the social domain is a bit more problematic. I think the same thing applies. I can go into the detail of critical realism, but I won't. First of all, quickly, constructivism is a theory of mind, not a model of curriculum. But it gave rise to discovery learning. And it gave rise to individualised learning of forms which have been very dysfunctional in our education system. Michael's work brings us to a very important insight that a lot of the knowledge and the learning at school is counterintuitive to young people. It's contrary to their lived experience. And the distinctiveness of these hard-won scientific concepts needs to be addressed in the curriculum. They are difficult to acquire because they are counterintuitive. Yeah, the one looks pretty flat to me. I know that cholera has caused the majority of what we ask people to acquire whilst at school is counterintuitive to their lived experience. It's tough. So this theoretical opposition, this false knowledge of powerful knowledge, because there's not enough space in the curriculum. So of course people are arguing for skills of trying to find space. And they've rendered a lot of knowledge very, very generic and therefore pretty useless, which aren't in the, the, the exegesis we have this evening. There are absurd notions of remembering and moving things into long-term memory and rem remembering them frees up the working memory. It makes education far more efficient and do more higher-order thinking if they actually remember things. They need to remember concepts, principles, fundamental operations, and core knowledge. Reading's a skill. Writing's a skill. Observation and recording in science is a skill. Observation in science is theoretical oppositions are absurd. Of course, balances can be explored in education. Value, values, and knowledge are always components of effective performance. Many breakdowns <coughs> in skill can be traced to breakdowns in underpinning knowledge. The final thing is this. In the same institution that Michael works in the Institute of Education, John Bunner and Tom Schiller have done fantastic. They've seen that the kind of things which Michael is advocating in powerful knowledge are explanatory of later life success. Of course, they are alongside things which John calls personal capital, <coughs> the ability to communicate with others, the ability to organize information, and so on. The final, final point, and it really is, is this. <laughs> it really is this to anybody managing a curriculum. If you believe in powerful knowledge, if you believe in the exegesis, and you look at the other international curriculum, if you believe in powerful knowledge and core content of specific disciplines, you don't change your national curriculum every 10 years. Not all of it. You refine it as human knowledge evolves. And I assure you, the major paradigms in all the major disciplines, geography, history, biology, core elements of other disciplines, change far less frequently than most people argue. And that schools are just crying out for in terms of producing effective learning 
which gives people access to health knowledge. Often when I had teacher talks in these discussions, they talk from a position of being able to mould a school entirely. And so the, um, the first one was a rebranded school, it was a new school, but it was a rebranded school, and so I started a new school with, that had been in the failing schools beforehand. So when we talk about new schools, we don't always talk about starting schools with only one year of that. Uh, and that was a very successful big comprehensive school, or a real comprehensive school, um, given its place in the world by the moment, um, and could only be described as a confident school, a very successful school, a very sought-after school. And I spent my um, nine years as head there doing various things, and one of the things that I did um, was to get people to think about the foundations for the curriculum and what the curriculum really meant us a while ago, those of us who had been head of the school, what it was that we were really pleased about in the time that we'd been head, the thing of 13, when the local authority were really keen for results to go like school by any standards, where the results were going like that, but other schools' results were going like that. And that's a really difficult position to have for us at that time. And it was incidentally to bolster my master up against the honours that I used to do lunch duty sitting at the back of the boys' gym, reading Michael's book page by page every day to, 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 to give me ways of arguing about what we were going to, uh, to, uh, to do in the future. Um, the third school where I've been here, this is my third year now, um, is a very interesting school, uh, once again, a, 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 a really large characteristics. One of them is a very long, 40-year commitment to creativity and the arts in a really big way, a very successful way. And the other aspect of it is the way that the, um, the, way that the accountability measures of the last few years have undermined that school's success and that school's curriculum. And I've spent the last two and a half years, and I will spend the next five years, rebuilding that curriculum in order to make sure that children get solid learning long-term learning and learning which will enable them to live more successful lives in, in the future. So when someone asked me just before we started here, um, what does a powerful knowledge curriculum in school look like? You, do you run your school on a powerful knowledge curriculum? Well, the answer is yes, but it's, but it's a hell of a lot harder than it sounds. And so what I do is, bearing in mind that Hirsch said that the curriculum was about protecting and preserving democracy, what I do is to try and put together principles upon which a solid and sustainable school is based. And I've got 10 principles, but I won't go through, through, through all of them. And this is what we work on at school. It's what we worked on in my last school. It's what we were feeling our way towards in our first school, which is that knowledge is worthwhile in itself. And so children ought to, ought to, ought to know that that schools share powerful knowledge on behalf of society. So we, we teach them what they need to know to make sense of and to improve the world. They need that knowledge in order to interpret and improve the world. It enables them to grow into useful citizens. Fair and just that all children should have access to this kind of learning and this kind of the debate that Michael's been having with the Centro is a really useful one. And it's a, bit, it's a debate I've been having for two years with the Special Needs Department 
in, in my cooker and school. And then to just pick up something that Tim said at the very end there. Adult authority is really important in this. There's a lot of the context of the knowledge and skills de debate and the curricula of the past 10 or 15 years in which the impact of student behaviour has been underplayed on what happened to the curriculum. So it's really important that schools are model communities in which teachers are valued and children can learn within a stable environment. So pedagogy links adult authority, powerful knowledge, and our sharing of it in the world. And so finally, I used to do an annual lecture for PGCE students at the University of Northumbria, uh, and it was on the National Curriculum. I did it for, for years and years, so I became quite familiar with the way that the National Curriculum changed every year, so I had to do new slides every year because it's always changing changing. But one of the things which I talked about a lot was one of the early values of the National Curriculum, which was that it was a curriculum that's, that was that tended towards a just and sustainable de democracy. And that seemed to me to be a really, really important point, which was almost completely lost. People didn't understand the democratic imperative of the National Curriculum. We have to put together in our schools day by day <coughs> model communities in which young people can grow and develop and be nurtured, in which we can push them out at the other end to play a useful part in the world. We have to put together those communities in, in which young people can understand the world and change it for the better. For the better, for the better. And the curriculum is the key to that. So, leave us alone. As Tim said, change the curriculum rarely, but think really hard about what we need of teachers and really hard about the way we measure schools in order for us to be given the time to actually get this right. Some of the some of the some of the most searching criticism, well, maybe searching or not, but some of the most some of the most common criticism, which um, some of the actually uh, both Tim and uh, Michael alluded to, was that actually uh, knowledge, yes, it's essential, but it's not sufficient. I think Candy Baker came out with something this week, basically saying the same thing. What do you say to that? You know, that's not the problem. It's not. It's not. It's too limited as a name when you're talking about a critic. I think the problem with that criticism is the narrowness of the interpretation of knowledge is about knowledge. It isn't just something there which has to be learned. It's actually itself community so forth. So it is actually the basis of the kind of democracy that in fact uh, uh, Carolyn and the uh, speaking about and the kind of respect for authority that any school needs. So many of the things that in fact people, uh, uh, you know, say not enough are because they've already boxed 
knowledge into a little section switching back is, is mistaken. So that would be my answer. So yeah, I mean, the, the, many of the criticisms of the kind that you describe, um, when you probe the, um, the understanding of knowledge that the critic has, they have a very impoverished concept. So, so when we talk about knowledge in the educational community, I mean, there's, if you analyze effective performance in respect to things like medics, the, the knowledge is intertwined into performance in, in a way which, which is completely contrary to this notion, this incredibly impoverished view of knowledge as a series of discrete things to be remembered. Um, and it's clear when we are other educational systems, they often paint really extreme caricatures of, of other systems, um, you know, focused exclusively on rote learning alone, um, focused only on articulating traditional knowledge. So basically um, the critics have got it wrong, they just don't understand what it's about, or how broad it is. You, have, inclusive. you have to look at the, the, the understanding of the idea of knowledge that many of the critics of the powerful knowledge thesis possess. And when you look at that, you find something very wanting and very at odds with both our international understandings and modern epistemic theory. And uh, you mentioned that actually you're not anti-skills, it's a false debate, so we won't go into that yet. But um, Caroline, another question that is often asked of, of um, powerful knowledge is actually the disciples creativity. That the powerful knowledge curriculum does not pay due attention to the creative disciplines in school. And you mentioned that your, your school was very uh, proud of its creative heritage, and I guess, well, what would you say to that? Well, that's just completely wrong. Um, <laughs> 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 you can equivocate uh, if you like. Two parts to an answer. Firstly, the the academic disciplines that will be characterised as being part of the arts as being part of creativity have a hugely important knowledge base. And actually, a good art teacher, a good drama teacher, a good dance teacher will be someone who is self-consciously always learning about what they do and therefore often much better at transmitting a love of learning and a love of knowledge than someone who hasn't looked at what's happening in the world of maths since they were 20, since they were 21. So there's that. And then there are the other things, which we used to call the hidden curriculum, didn't we, when I was but, but a lad. And that's to, and that's to, to do with the, um, the, the personal characteristics that schools develop in young people. So of course knowledge isn't the whole story, but we do the other stuff in our communities in any case. Politicians don't know enough about schools to know what else it is that we do apart from teach people in classrooms. Okay. Can I just add, I mean, I can be a fantastically creative liver surgeon. Um, I know nothing about it, but I could be extremely creative. And um, it's really important that when you look at what we define as creative activity by young people, you know, what they're doing is finding patterns, structures, they're gaining insights. To do that, they need to marshal things, they need to know things the level of technique and the level of knowledge. And that, that this, again, a false opposition between the acquisition of powerful knowledge and creative activity in schools. And clearly you've been involved in the new curriculum in particular, and the But do you think there's enough powerful knowledge in there, the new curriculum? What's right? The new curriculum, the one that the, 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 the government is rolling out at the moment, do you think there's enough attention and uh, pay to powerful knowledge 
I think um, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that you can use this as a kind of way for actually identifying. I don't think that's uh, useful. What, what, what was striking to me when I was, well, two things striking me, my colleagues uh, responded to. One was that we need to give some thought to how the subject specialists are educated in their subject before they come to school. And are they, do they have the, 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 the knowledge of what that's, how that subject relates to the world, how, how it progresses, a whole lot of things that, that they often are ill-prepared uh, to engage with, and which in fact pupils could engage with. And I think that is an issue which we do not seriously address. Um, the, the, and uh, I think uh, that the issue about um, skill, I mean, creativity, I'm very worried about the fashion for creativity, deeply worried. I think it's part of uh, something that, in fact, Christine, you've written about. It's part of this session, and I'm not sure where it comes from, for genericism, for actually thinking that there are these sort of uh, generic capabilities that can be abstracted from any content and then map back on yeah. to the content at all. I think it's very, very misleading because there's no creativity that actually develops in that kind of way at all. In a sense, you, you actually have to, have to stay with the content of a particular thing, whether it's history or physics, whatever it is. And when, when, you, when you do... Or dance or music. Or dance or music, exactly. And um, uh, the, the um, I mean, I was hearing, I remember, uh, Kevin will remember, a really, really interesting talk which worried me about art education, what's happening to art teaching in schools. I know absolutely nothing about art teaching in schools. But what I gathered was that, in a sense, that gradually there was a shift from thinking to doing. That, in fact, the emphasis was increasingly on what the student did and not putting the student in any kind of relationship to art in the broader sense of what, where it's come from and why and so forth. And, that's, and, and therefore they were ill-equipped to, to actually move into professional or an academic or whatever art or art world as well. So I do think that, I think that the genericism is, is something that we have to find a way of tackling because when it comes to it, it's actually a form of accountability, not a form uh, of, of curriculum and knowledge. It, 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 it's a neat form of accountability. I think, I think some of the fear about, uh, the, especially from those subjects that feel that they are being squeezed out of the curriculum by, by the new curriculum and by this kind of agenda, is that uh, there is a priority, it's a hierarchy of subjects, mm -hmm. and that the less regarded subjects, uh, because they're less regarded, will be least well taught. That's a perfectly valid fear, isn't it? That's a fear, but that's a different kind of thing. That, that's a completely different issue. That's an issue that I think is related to the misplaced view that schools are about preparing people for an economy. Yeah. And that somehow or other, STEM is the solution to the economy. And the more you focus on STEM in the way they do, the less it will actually do what you want it to do. So I think, in a sense, uh, I, I think we have to kind of... I mean, the interesting thing, there's really... Uh, a book by Critical of Human Capital Theory, which is where this comes from. 
and he's saying actually that in fact in capitalist theory uh, is, is actually as the Marxists, that both of them actually see schools as sort of sources for an economy, one that the economy will collapse and one that will grow. And there's no focus on, in a sense, what are the schools for? Determining this is, is, is not um, the smallest of hot objects, if you want to call them that, aren't being pushed out by anything other than that is insufficiently understood. So the fear of accountability and whichever whim will be measured by the next year is what drives a cautious that preserves compulsory languages or compulsory drama in that circumstance. So what you would advise him, you would well, not bound to accountability. Yeah, I want to take that back to your original question, which is what do we think we've got with the, with the national curriculum which was implemented? Um, and I said many times not to confuse the national curriculum with the school curriculum. So in the school curriculum, you have the exciting, motivating, chock full of the context which will motivate particular children in particular circumstances. But I think Michael's analysis shows that you, you, you include a description of that in a national curriculum at your power. Yeah, yeah. And that's really very, very important. Um, the, the other thing which is an implication which you know, Michael and I have not unpacked perhaps enough that we're, we're doing a lot of work on in Cambridge is the extent to which we are talking about foundational knowledge. We're not talking about presenting the totality of human knowledge to, to a child immediately. But there are certain foundational building blocks which are very challenging which young people have to acquire and build one on the other as they move towards more elaborated knowledge in discipline areas. And some of these, such as you know, an understanding of energy, all the evidence about young, young people, you know, age 10 and 12, they find these things unbelievably difficult. And, and the learning is often full of misconceptions. So the idea of foundational building blocks is absolutely fundamental to the curriculum. And I do hope that that's something which we pay a great deal of attention to. In the, in the formulation of the, the curriculum which is now in implemented. Okay, there's another area I want to explore, which is about um, uh, misguided disciples, uh, people who have got an incomplete or wrong view of any kind of any kind of new thinking or, or movement. So you know, you start with a Martin Luther before you know it, you need it. And Anabaptists, you know, people get the wrong. People, people just just take get, get the wrong idea. Uh, so, for instance, uh, Hirsch would obviously your thinking your thinking is a lie. But, um, uh, do you think his work and your work has been misrepresented? And if so, how? What are the most common ways we can misrepresent it? Um, I just start by um, I didn't manage to come to the talks that Hirsch gave when he was here. Um, but uh, I did read a little bit about his um, earlier history in the democratic movement in the United States. And whatever else you say about Hirsch, he's not a kind of classic conservative. Yeah. Uh, no. uh, and um, it's worth saying that's, uh, that, that's uh, not. Um, I. I um, well, Mike, let me just. Uh, this, this, he was interviewed a few months ago by the CS. I don't know if you saw it. So he was basically asked about um, pedagogy and basically uh, uh, what he thought about how uh, how children should be taught. And he basically said um, he was he was agnostic. There, was a, there, there are people quote a traditional teaching of knowledge, not progressive methods, foster a child's self-esteem. And he said in response to that, he kids by as if they were learning the Quran. 
The truth is, you can have a defined curriculum and use all sorts of progressive methods to deliver it. If the kids get the results and you can prove it works, then do it. Who cares how you deliver it as long as it gets into the minds of the children and they're happy? Do you agree? No. <laughs> Explain why. Uh, I just like to say very briefly two things. One to echo and emphasise the point that, uh, that that Tim made about the relationship between a national curriculum uh, specifying and the <coughs> very often schools and I to what Karen was saying, and I was very struck by it when I think I heard your general secretary's idea about different types of schools. If, you're a, if you are a confident school, then you won't treat the national curriculum as if it's your curriculum. You will actually have a curriculum for interpreting the national curriculum. But if you're not a confident school, the only thing you do is to try and follow it as if it was. And I think that that's... Uh, um, and um, I, th I think that, that, that this guy did... I mean, I, uh, the other thing I want to say is that... Why, why is Hirsch wrong? Why, why, do, you, why, what, do, you think, why do you think Hirsch is wrong now? I don't think... Uh, why do I think Hirsch is wrong is, is, is because I actually think that um, the pedagogy is a distinct... It's obviously not separate from curriculum, mm. but it is actually a very important practice, theoretical practice. We don't do all that much teaching research on it, and it, it, to be able to say it doesn't matter how they teach, yeah, as long as you've got right, I think actually is misguided because people are not going to take the pedagogy seriously. I get worried, I mean, I think there's some truth in, in, in the uh, Go system, yeah. but in a sense that some people took pedagogy so seriously they forgot about the curriculum. And the difficulty is holding the two, I think, because if you get, if you get, Focus only on the curriculum and forget about pedagogy. You just you, you just get memorization, you go to station. Yeah. If you get only pedagogy, you get happy days, but you don't learn anything. Um, at least. And, and I think holding the two, I just think we have to accept the fact that it's, first of all, that it's really difficult, and secondly, that we've got to trust our teachers more if we want them to act and take on the difficult things. Because we trust other professions, but we don't, aren't very good at trusting. Can I just ask it? Yeah, a practicing teacher. Yeah, can I, 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 I'd like to make two points, and I hope they're not too tangential. I don't think that they are. Um, it's quite tricky in schools to define for a teaching staff what curriculum thinking actually is. Because teachers, by necessity, conflate the national curriculum with the school curriculum, but most of all the example specification. So that's what drives the curriculum content, and we do it backwards, and we say, let's strip everything out, let's, let, 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 let's, let's look at what we want to teach from year seven upwards, this is really important, we've got no presuppositions, you can teach what, what you like, and the first thing that a head of department does is to reach for the A-level specification and work backwards through there. So that's a real issue, and that's to do with accountability. There's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with schooling that can't be laid at the door of crass accountability measures. And the other misconception, which no one's touched on yet, but Michael said that we, that we weren't gold, and that's very true, um, is that powerful knowledge is not the same as the EBAC. There's, a, there's, there's, a, there's, I think, a mistake being made that the EBAC, that if you cover the EBAC, 
Well, then you've got the knowledge to debate it right. And they're actually two different things. Tim, do you agree with that? Um, yes, and I want to go back also to the history of Furnish. Yeah. Um, and I'll come back to the EBAC issues, I think, and about how you steer education systems. Um, so, I mean, anybody interested in, in, in E.D. Hirsch, just, just read his history. I mean, he, you know, he, was, he became interested in all this stuff, which is a, a real diversion from the work that he was doing for many, many years, because he was really bothered about the fact that, that certain groups, particularly young black kids in the States, young black males, just, just couldn't have access to the kind of literature that he was teaching them, because they just didn't understand the they had no knowledge of the signals, the cultural signifiers in the text, and so on and so on. It was a, it was a profoundly um, progressive and, and uh, uh, analysis based on equity. So, you know, forget all this. He was indeed appropriated then by a whole series of groups, um, sometimes misrepresented, but certainly his origins are, are very interesting. It's worth our reading about him. And the fact that he says he's not agnostic about pedagogy, um, I mean, that is just. I think probably a defensive statement by. Well, that was his words. Yeah, I know, but not you know. In this kind of yeah. setting, you say you can be agnostic about it because you just don't want to talk about the detail of it and don't want to be vulnerable about the. Well, he just said actually, around to say that pedagogy is highly variable, is very context dependent. That's Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's good. Okay. So, so, and the key thing there is, would I argue that that you know anything goes into the pedagogy? No. And and Lucy Crehan, who's in the audience, has done some really lovely work comparing different systems. And there's a great, there's a great exchange in one of one of the chapters where, you know, a Canadian kid is, is is the comment on doing the maths wrong is you've been terribly creative. <laughs> Whereas in in a, in a in a Confucian setting, it's that's not right. You need to put more effort into understanding it. Okay, and that is very liberating. That second view because it means that with more effort, that mathematics is accessible to anyone. You know, which which is exactly what Michael was actually saying about a truly liberatory curriculum and liberatory pedagogy. Really, really important. So I think some, some forms of pedagogy are tied very much to models of learning which are antithetical to the powerful knowledge thesis. Yeah, and that, that's a real problem. Well, I mean, let's move on to talk a little bit before I um, expand the discussion of the audience about the politics. Uh, because uh, Robin Alexander has said, for instance, among others, uh, that uh, a lot of this um, drive towards uh, uh, a powerful knowledge curriculum is based on what he called piece of panic. That basically you, you look at all these high-performing jurisdictions, uh, Singapore, China, and uh, you know, and, you, and you, you get the wrong lessons from them. Basically, you think, ah, it's because they've got uh, knowledge. But, uh, knowledge-based, powerful knowledge of curriculum, and actually it's up to do with cultural factors. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing to do with, you know, I paraphrase madly by saying it's a surfeit of typing others, it's nothing to do with, it's nothing to do with, uh, or a little to do with uh, uh, powerful knowledge. What do you say to that? Well, actually, let's get to Michael, because he's obviously, absolutely. yeah. I mean, Robin Alexander doesn't like being challenged too much. <laughs> uh, he thinks he's king of primary education, and uh, he's certainly the leading uh, researcher in that field, but uh, and therefore I can understand that he feels a bit upset. I've never met him, so it's not really a personal thing, uh, but nevertheless, it does strike me. I mean, one of the things that I've uh, always been, and I'd love to do some proper research on this, I've always been puzzled by it, 
is that in fact the enormous differences between the private and state primary curriculum in the age five or six, that in fact the, the, uh, this, the private primary curriculum, which as you know is called, they're called, called preparatory schools, they actually see no reason why we shouldn't engage pupils with subjects from the age of six or seven. Uh, or even earlier, and uh, whereas, and that's been part of their history for obvious practical reasons, not because they've had any great theory or anything, but they are preparing people for a common entrance examination, get to the public schools and get their kids in, because if they don't, they won't recruit next time. So they're, you know, it's, it's wonderful about them, but it is just true. Um, but I do think that it does make me wonder, you know, the history of why the uh, Primary education for the, for the majority, for the mass people in this country, actually postponed access to knowledge, and um, I, I, I find it a very unresearched, indeed, uh, but in a sense um, a area. And um, I just I just raise it. I, I think that I, I I mean I'm not I have no particular brief. For, I don't know, global explanations like in relation to PISA. I mean, I, the relationship between a knowledge and curriculum and PISA seems to be tangential given the type of tests. But that's a separate issue. I mean, that, that in fact, uh, you would train them in generic skills if you wanted them to do well at PISA. Uh, and nobody is, in fact, saying that. Um, I think that um, uh, it, it, so, I mean, I came to this quite, uh, you know, quite, I came to this from two quite different groups, academic, not political, and not in a sense. I came to it partly from the work I was doing in the 90s on vocational education, because what absolutely hit me was that, in fact, unlike in countries like Germany, in fact, as soon as you go opt towards a vocational course here, it's assumed that you don't need to think. It's assumed that you only do. And the competence model is developed, and that's what we had from MBQs and a slightly more nimble version of CMBQ, GMBQs, and so from that was where I started. I think, and the other, the other part, of, the other factor, and, and trying to actually say, well, you know, what should the knowledge of the vocation? I mean, if it's vocational education, then it must have a core knowledge component. The other, the other thing that uh, the other part that influenced me enormously, I've talked a little bit to Bill about it, to about it was, was in fact the experience of being a consultant in South Africa in the 1990s and actually uh, seeing what happened when they tried to introduce a broad-based outcomes curriculum that was democratic and you couldn't take issue with it, but in fact it was completely useless for the teachers. They didn't know what to do with it um, because there was no knowledge specification in that curriculum at all. And um, that, in a sense, it was hardly an advance on apartheid, although politically it was. So that goes So that I'm just. I'm no, 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 that's fine. I mean, uh, the sadly absent and missed uh, Professor Alexander, Tim, also goes on that uh, points out that. Uh, Essential knowledge uh, in key subjects, most national curriculums are based on essential knowledge in key subjects, basket cases and successes alike. So signing up to, to, to uh, powerful knowledge or things like that, uh, what Michael calls curricular justice, I think, is, 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 isn't, isn't, isn't so important as the conditions and practices 
the curriculum can be delivered. Right. On that, I'd, I'd agree very much with the kind of drift of that, that uh, analysis. But th there is another nuance around it, uh, around um, Robin's analysis, which I do take some exception to. I mean, it, it is absolutely critical, as he says, to understand the, the cultural characteristics and setting of education. And, and it explains a lot about the difference between different systems and, uh, and the way in which learning unfolds. But I, I want culture to be more than just an object of curiosity for researchers undertaking transnational analysis. Unlike Robin, I think that um, the, the, the idea of uh, uh, deliberately making the culture in your school an object of policy and management is, is really critical. And that we can learn from the cultural, uh, uh, the form of culture in schools in other national settings for the type of culture and expectations we have in our own schools in England. And I, I argue a sense for far more attention than has been paid to culture in the past. Okay, and uh, Michael, especially given your, given your background on, on the left, I want to ask you, why do you think the left has seeded this country? Why is it, why is powerful knowledge uh, been abandoned to the right? I've asked myself that question many times, and uh, I have lost friends and uh, colleagues, um, good friends who I have a lot of and respect for who have taken a totally opposite view and it's been a painful experience to me, very, very painful. And uh, um, I certainly wouldn't want to generalise too much from the small expression that I have. I mean, I think that there is a kind of uh, romanticism on the left which basically uh, thinks that at some point or other the uh, capitalism will collapse and that therefore we don't need to think about what happens on the way there. Um, now, capitalism has not shown a lot of likelihood doing that. It's changed all kinds of things, but I think that's, that's part of it. I'm very, very taken by, some of you read Paul Mason's new book on post-capitalism, uh, if you haven't read it, it's a riveting you could read. You might not agree with it, it's a riveting you could read. One of the things he does mention is that at every, and, and, and you know, it's brave of him this, at, at, every, at every point where the working class looked as though they were becoming powerful, they ducked out and went for a just, went for compromise. That in fact there was, you know, that in a sense Marx got that completely wrong. Uh, actually, sadly, I mean, or not, or whatever you think, like you think. But um, that, so that's a factor. Um, and um, I'm sure the Mensheviks will agree with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, they, they would. They would agree. You see, yeah, they're the only ones. Yeah, they would. All right, yeah. So um, I think uh, obviously it's unfair to label the left as a whole, but. Um, it, it, I think it was a. I think people have spent. We may get a difference in the young, new. I don't know, a, a, a younger left, but people have spent a long time. Let me put it. Sorry, let me put it another way. People have been. People on the left have basically seen their identities as critics, as critics of a system 
that in fact is unfair. And nobody would disagree with the fact that we have an unfair, unequal system. But they, uh, and the idea that we might be able to come up with something that was not just a criticism but an alternative was actually too much for them. They, they couldn't make that step. Or to put it crudely in a slight throw off, but you'll excuse me, they read too much Foucault. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to uh, put, put a bit of context behind this business of why the left is in the position that it is. And speaking as a socialist and a feminist, I would just like to plant my colours firmly there. Um, Left-wing teachers have often been um, attracted to and very committed to and done long service in very difficult schools in difficult areas. And that's really important to recognise that. Now, Rob Cole from Durham University can't be um, persuaded to say much that's very clear that a school can translate into immediate action. But what can, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm absolutely not criticising him for that. I think that's the most cutting remark. What he does say, what he does say, and 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 what he does say, and I educated all three of his chitch chitch incidentally, is that children learn things when they've got to think really hard. That's about all you'll be committed to. Children learn when they've got to think really hard. Now, if you are teaching in an area historically where the link between education and any kind of success in life is hard to see, well then it's really hard to overcome the natural adolescent reluctance to think really hard. And therefore, if you are simultaneously being, present, being pressed to put results up like that, you've got, to, you've got to do things in which adolescents can not really have to think really hard. And therefore, the left became attached to qualifications and a way of teaching and specifications that didn't mean that children had to think really hard because it's really hard work doing that. It's hard doing that. You've got to be a brilliant teacher to do that. And it gets wearing after 30 years. And so there's a context to understand, which is what I referred to earlier, which is that we underplay the importance of behaviour and community, what you were talking about in terms of school culture, in this whole, in this whole powerful knowledge debate. It's really important. So if you want to say something, then I'll go to the So this issue of appropriation by particular political communities, I think it's fascinating because if, if you go back to the discourse around the Workers' and Education Association in the 1920s and 1930s, then what you've heard this evening is in those texts. I mean, it was all about giving access to the curriculum of those who attended only certain institutions. And so it is, it, I've asked myself this question, and asked a lot of people the same question, and looked at a lot of the literature. Where would I put my finger? I would... I put my finger on a very odd mixture of, of postmodernist theory and, um, and theory around uh, the structure of knowledge. So, and, and, and John White, uh, John's not here tonight, so it's unfair to talk about him, I guess, but, you know, John. Robin Coe, Robin, uh, yeah, Robin, sorry, Robin, Robin, yeah. Robin Alexander. I've been trashed before. Continue in a similar vein. So, lack of equity in the social relations which give rise to particular knowledge is not a basis for criticising the content of that knowledge. And it's been terribly, terribly confused. 
you know, to, to, to talk around, to talk about bourgeois knowledge, and it's legitimate because you know, many of our great natural scientists during the, the 17th and 18th century were incredibly privileged individuals, leading incredibly, incredibly privileged lives. But you know, 240 volts really hurts. You know, that's yeah, just yeah. the way it is. You know, resistance behaves the way it wants to behave. It is powerful knowledge, and if you don't have it, it, it actually is highly predictive of bad life outcomes. Michael, just one. There was just one point which I think uh, Carolyn touched on, and I was just to say again, from the point of view of the left, uh, and that was, and I, I think my experience in South Africa was quite a, helped me in learning this, that in fact um, we can be democratic about access, but the actual activity of teaching is not a democratic one. Uh, it's one between somebody who knows and somebody who doesn't know but wants to know. And that there's an authoritarian, not authoritarian, authority relationship of a particular kind. And I think that is tricky for if you are a democrat. You know, you, if you're a, a, on the left, you go for Paolo Freire, lovely man, great and learns a lot of not always treated very accurately, but um, you know, he gives you a feeling that, in a sense, that if you want democracy, you have a democratic system. Whereas actually, uh, the pedagogy in the school is not going to be a democracy in the process. And I think that was something that left found extremely difficult. And I went through that myself, so I can speak. You know, I remember. I mean, I thought when I read Pedagogy of the Press, I thought it was the most wonderful book I'd ever read. But that was a long time ago. And, 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 and Gabriel Holosaga, in, in Real Finnish Lessons, it, 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 people miss this often because they, they read over it. He quotes Hannah Arendt in The Crisis of Education, 1954. And Hannah Arendt's position in liberatory politics, very interesting. Quote, the problem of education in the modern world lies in the fact that by its very nature, it cannot forego either authority or tradition and yes, yet must proceed in a world that's neither structured by authority nor held together by tradition. And it's a brilliant quote. Well, with that, let me um, ask, the <laughs> ask the audience, I've wished it on enough, questions? Yes, the lady there. Um, I think it's the mic just behind you. <coughs> um, I think the presenters have some fascinating presentations. Carolyn, you mentioned that uh, one of the enormous problems uh, in curriculum in schools is that the growing zone for tracking back from assessing objectives. I imagine that that is curriculum planning. Um, and I strongly agree that there have been many, many schools where you, you find people proudly present to you that your year sevens can answer a four mark describe answer and a six mark explains answer. And they're busy doing that for five years because these proxy genres that have been invented for GCSE are deemed to be the curriculum. Now, you mentioned accountability culture and made a lot of blame at the door of the accountability mm -hmm. culture. Um, well, maybe. But how far is the problem also a lack of knowledge in schools, in teachers and in senior leaders about curricula, about the relationship between the domain, the curriculum, and the test? So that we don't necessarily have capacity in, in our collective professional knowledge to think about curriculum. Yeah. Okay, yes, absolutely. Um, where shall I start? Um, it's really hard if you set aside a training day, for example, for people to sit in their departments and think about the curriculum and what should be in it, what they should, what they want to teach in a dream world. 
you've almost got to confiscate any kind of written information from the exam boards. Because otherwise they just won't think about it. They just won't think about it. I have a question which I ask at interview, um, towards the end of the, of the, in the, in the, in the interview, I say to, to teachers, what are you reading at the moment? And if they can give me a reasonable answer, even if it's, you know, children's book to their sixties, <coughs> or, or detective fiction, or the latest thing about their own subject, those are all better answers than I'm really reading about K-stage 3 life after the levels. I don't want to know that. I really don't want to know that. I want to know what they're doing to understand their subject better and to keep their knowledge levels up. And the third problem um, is to do with the fact that some of the brightest and the best young teachers now have absolutely no conception of what designing your own curriculum is. And actually, I say young teachers, I am by no means a spring chicken, and yet, oh, I hear the cries of, oh, show, show me. <laughs> but, but yet, I was only unable to carry on thinking about the curriculum and thinking about what I wanted to teach because I was uh, an RE specialist, so I could invent it for myself everywhere I went. Whereas it's almost gone, it's a, it's a skill that needs to be retaught, and we haven't, been, we haven't got time in school to retaught it. William, I mean, you and I have discussed history. I was with some physicists recently. I mean, these are leading physicists from a you know, leading research laboratory in Cambridge. And they were going through the A-level syllabus for physics. And they said, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that. Yeah, need that, don't need that, don't need that. The point is that, that yes, absolutely, our qualifications drive the curriculum in, a, in exactly the reductive way you described. The accountability has adversely affected curriculum development. And the problem is that what we then put into qualifications is not necessarily mobilised by the same kind of approach to path of knowledge which Michael's actually advocating. So in Cambridge Assessment, we develop qualifications. We always emphasise the constructs. What are the constructs? And how do they help somebody progress in education onto the next stage or into society and so on? And unfortunately, our qualifications in many cases have been appropriated by specifications which incorporate things very dubious problems of the kind that you described in okay. terms of those proxy genres. Okay, more questions. Uh, there's uh, Sir John Dunford there, there, or being regal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yes, thank you. Um, uh, thank you very much indeed for those presentations. I'm going to really wear my hat tonight as Chair of Whole Education. Um, and, and so I want to bring a, a note of optimism to the proceedings because all education is a network of schools that really is exploring that space between the size of the school curriculum and the size of the thing you've got to do that's driven by accountability and different syllabuses and so on. And they're recognising that in that space, and I'm, I'm partly talking too because of my work around disadvantaged kids with youth premium. I think it is particularly important for disadvantaged children to have a both-hand curriculum. Yes. A rigorous curriculum, yes, but a curriculum that embraces both knowledge and skills and personal qualities yes, sure. and plans the development of those in, 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 a, plan, uh, in a planned way. And <coughs> actually, primary schools are better at doing that than secondary schools because of the way they're structured. Uh, in secondary schools, you've got 
child having 14 different teachers, you've got to really plan it very carefully. So my question to the, to the panel is, do you accept that if you regard the, um, uh, the pedagogy, if you like, of uh, this both-hand curriculum as a warp and a wave, you don't give up teaching knowledge while you teach skills. You map the teaching of the skills onto the teaching of knowledge, and then you can do that. Michael, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it may sound a slightly uh, theoretical answer. It's a long time since I taught. I used to teach chemistry many years ago, secondary school. Uh, and um, but I'm deeply convinced that, uh, I mean, I think the, the, the issue is important, but in fact, the separation is misplaced because there are no skills that are knowledge-free. There is not anything that one could do worthwhile in a school that, in fact, is teaching skills. And, in, and similarly, there's no knowledge you can acquire without skills. I mean, in a sense, the, the, the divide is the problem. And in a sense, we have to go, once we get beyond it, we start thinking about different fields, which might, you know, whether they are um, design technology or uh, Greek, ancient Greek or whatever it is, we can see them, we can see knowledge and skills in relation to whatever the field is. And I think that's the step I would want to take. I really would. And I don't think we would necessarily disagree uh, at all on that. But I think I think that it, it's um, it, it goes back to the the, 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 the I think the totally misplaced notion because we, schools don't do that anymore, and they even if they did, but somehow that they're preparing for the labour market. Mm -hmm. uh, now there isn't a labour market for young people now. There isn't, except in part-time occasional work, zero hours. There isn't a labour market. You're preparing people for a very uncertain future. And they, and somehow other, the, and therefore the skills again, but the not, knowledge gender that doesn't actually take skills seriously, I think will fail itself. So I mean, you know, that, that's my response. Has anybody got a sceptical question? <laughs> oh, yes, gentlemen there. Speaking on that sceptical point, I, I, uh, I, 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 I think that um, Hirsch is good look, and I think Michael Gold uh, was a good look. But, the, the sort of like problem that I have is that the cultural argument has never really been won for powerful knowledge. The political argument has never really been won. And so you have this situation where the, the Tory government have created these mechanisms within schools, but the way that it works itself out at the cold face, no matter what way you spin it, at the end of the day, I think Carlin's right, that what it's reduced to effectively is the teachers teaching to the test because they feel under pressure with the assessment measures. And so that leads me to a question, might be a ridiculous question, but when you look at what a school is for, is there not a disjuncture between the original aim of rule allocation? We type, we have these exams to try to get them to particular job, universities, etc., and the Matthew Arnold idea of the best being thought instead of known. And is it possible to create an education system where we can teach the best that's thought and said and known without the, the bizarre pressure with the thing that's supposed to measure that adequately, the exam, 
actually bastardizes the process of passing on that knowledge? So basically, how can you have a powerful knowledge curriculum if teachers feel powerless? <coughs> yes. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, because that made me muse about uh, where we've got to, for example, with K-Stage 3, so everyone's using this Gusky phrase, might have to look the levels of what we're meant to be doing with K-Stage 3. Um, and so we had a fancy system where the departments are setting up the threshold concepts that move children from one of learning to the next, and that's how we'll measure what, what, you know, the kind of success that's happening. But if you take your eye off teachers for a second, they go back to level with it. <coughs> because they think that will protect them against the rough to come at the end of the year. And it's really difficult, it's a really difficult position to be in. We're not talking yet about teacher recruitment, and you see with teacher recruitment, because everything that we want to do relies on um, both uh, the three things, clever, committed, and available teachers. So I... I don't know. <laughs> Did you, do you have an answer, Tim? Well, I want to come back to John, actually, just, just briefly. When I think in, in your both and, when you're actually right, and it's, it's the and that I emphasised in a paper a while ago, the framework of knowledge, skills, and personal qualities, I mean, that's absolutely critical as an audit tool for any curriculum, whether it's in this country or anywhere else. And I think it, you have to ask, in what balance do they exist, how are they distributed, and what instruments guarantee that they are delivered? And I think that's a really good way of looking at things. Um, and, it, and, and of course, over time, how you sequence acquisition as you move through those three pillars, as it were. I mean, I don't think that necessarily implies very complex cross-curriculum approaches, actually, which are often typically unmanageable, either in primary or in secondary. Um, and, and the best way of illustrating that is, is reading. I mean, reading is cross-curricular by its very nature. And there's nothing as narrowing as not being able to read. Um, you have to read some things, and you can look at the breadth of what, what people read. And, and, and I want to go back to something I said that we haven't, haven't highlighted, Helena Bassey's work on working memory. It is right that in certain settings and in, in certain, certain national systems, and, and I think it is right in ours too, that kids should, should remember their times tables. They should be able to recall them automatically. Why? Because it frees up the working memory for higher analytical thinking. If you, if you haven't got those automatically located in cognition, you have to work it out every time. <laughs> and it prevents you from gaining access to the higher order work, which we know is critical in terms of real educational progression. So John, yes, we should never lose sight of those three. And we need to look at how they are combined in, in well-designed curriculum and how they see Okay, I think we've got time for just two more questions. So I think uh, the lady there in the red.
worried about the emphasis on emotional learning because I think it, in a sense, two, two reasons. One is that um, uh, not learning anything, if you are involved in it, is emotional. Uh, that in fact there isn't something separate called emotional learning. Uh, and I think that it actually uh, is often seen as a solution to kids who find it difficult to learn. And therefore they may, it may actually exaggerate the problems that they are in. Um, so um, uh, I, 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 think, I think it has to be addressed in a, in, a, in a way that actually looks at pedagogy as a whole and asks the, what, the questions about the relationship between the teacher and, teacher and, and their classes uh, in, in that way, rather than something that's been hived out by uh, an academic discipline, uh, like something like emotional intelligence as well as in ordinary intelligence. I, I, I am unhappy about that, quite honestly. I'd make one really quick comment about that. Uh, yes, it's really important, but you predicate a deficit model there. And social and emotional um, aspects of learning ought to be dealt with by the way that a school runs and the way that a school cares for its students. It, it shouldn't have to be done separately. Okay, final question. I'll go to Lady here and Martin there. So Martin first one. Hello, thank you, Gerard. Um, I think one of the, for me, one of the most important things said tonight was said quite early, which was um, that if a national curriculum or a total school curriculum is designed appropriately, it ought to be one which is appropriate for all children and learners. And, and uh, this was passed by a, a bit. Uh, I'm assuming we are talking from early years at least to the end of lower secondary. Um, I, I think that this is, in terms of like practical policy directions, one of the most important things said tonight. Um, uh, and it's clearly off the radar. Um, how do we get it back on? I'm not exactly fair to your basics now. Oh. Okay. A comprehensive curriculum okay. for all. Yeah. How do we? How do we? How do we restore one? Or actually, build one for the very first time. Fine. Okay. And uh, just glad you. Right. Okay. And uh, lady here, you wanted a question? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I think um, Karen and Tim touched on slightly. You mentioned how you would find it quite daunting, or some teachers find it daunting to make a knowledge-based curriculum. And does that not boil down to teachers who are entering the, entering the profession having quite shoddy subject knowledge because it's not a priority in ITT? And I do think this is unachievable. I believe in knowledge completely, but I think it's unachievable in ITT purely because university teachers have, a, they're very much, they very much kind of endorsed progressive ideals of education in their university practice. So we have a disjunct between teachers who believe in knowledge and university, trainer, university providers and trainers who want to produce teachers of really high social quality but don't value knowledge explicitly as much as they value skills and pedagogy and behavior management. Okay, so my review of the knowledge um, brought back onto the agenda and from the civil ICT. I, I, 
I won't, I'd rather leave them as to say something about future education. Yeah. Because, uh, but um, I'd, I'd just like to pick up on if I've understood the point you make, I think that in a sense what you were saying was that in fact uh, you picked up on something which, I, I mean, we all, I think, agree, but I said at the beginning was that in fact the, the debate must be about a knowledge, a powerful knowledge curriculum for all pupils. And in fact, we haven't really examined that element of it as much as we should. And I think, uh, insofar as I've been involved in the powerful knowledge the debate, writing, and so forth, I think that that has been uh, neglected. The focus has been on what is this thing about the knowledge, rather than, for instance, the issue which I just touched on in, in, in my talk. If, you, if a school takes on the issue of powerful knowledge, Seriously, it's then got to ask, in fact, how are teachers in that practice in the classroom extending pupils' knowledge in what they do? How, it's not just curriculum, it's actually, it's actually focusing on, in a sense, and, and I think it, it shifts it, it becomes a question about practice uh, and about criteria for good professional practice as much as it does about curriculum. And I think one, if we've made that shift, it would be quite an important step if I've understood you right. And I mean, that was why I was, I mean, so impressed with that email I got, because clearly, in some kind of way, they I'm were... Sorry, about special needs. Yes, and then the email. Yeah. They were trying to do this with kids who clearly, uh, they were refusing to accept the categorization that those pupils came with. Okay. Uh, and ITC. Yeah, I think it's a bit unfair to lay that entirely at the door of the universities. Um, one goes shopping for a bright young thing to take on to the staff and you find yourself a bright young head of department with a Cambridge degree perhaps and then you discover because that young person is in her late twenties um, that actually what that person knows is what they've been examined on during the course of their school life and not much else in between. Uh, and so I think that the pro problem, one of the problems that we face, is what we did to education for the last 20 years. So it's not that the universities are necessarily anti-knowledge and not understanding enough. It's that, um, it's that people have been producing people coming through schools who can pass tests, but who don't know how to pursue knowledge for its own purposes for the rest of their lives. Thank you. Um, sadly, we've run out of time. Um, there's, uh, I'd like to thank um, uh, Michael and Tim and Carolyn, and also I'd like to thank Aspel and uh, uh, Policy Exchange for hosting this evening. Thank you all for turning up on a rather wet Tuesday afternoon, and uh, hope you have a good evening. Thank you. <laughs>